This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I've been a researcher at UCSF for almost 30 years and started out in the bone field and subsequently got interested in back pain as a clinical area. And there's a lot of interesting science underlying uh, you know, the causes of back pain, which was, I think, much less understood at the time as compared to uh, osteoporosis or some bone-related conditions. And so I got into that field and, and haven't looked back. So I'm going to talk about a study that we did that was focused on um, spines in general and uh, intervertebral discs in the spine in particular. And the duration of uh, the anticipated flight to Mars and back is quite long. And there's um, you know, obviously a concern about the technical aspects of the equipment, but there's the people as well and the many health conditions that might um, be compromised with such a long duration flight and microgravity, a bone loss. There's uh, many other uh, conditions that we know are influenced by microgravity, muscle, heart function, uh, the neurovestibular system, uh, vision impairment, circadian rhythm, and, and uh, space radiation. Uh, and this is, a, this is an example of a uh, kind of a calculation or a cartoon of a calculation that was uh, uh, published uh, about a decade ago, kind of projecting what might happen to bone strength, muscle strength at the, uh, the knee and the ankle over the duration of a flight to Mars and back. So the outbound flight, you know, six months, you're, you're down about, uh, you know, 15% in terms of muscle strength on the Mars surface and then coming back to Earth. And so you can see there's a significant decrement in bone and muscle strength that's anticipated to occur. And so the question is, why is this happening? Um, and what should we be doing to uh, protect the health of the crew, uh, both for the purpose of keeping them able to do their job while they're on their mission, but also not being injured uh, when they return to gravity. Uh, one of the conditions that uh, we became interested in was uh, uh, back pain is a common problem. You know, there, there's a significant percent of crew report the space adaptation back pain uh, over the transition period into microgravity. Uh, a significant percentage of that can become chronic. And so, uh, you know, uh, clearly a, a crew member with chronic back pain in space um, is uh, going to be unable to do their job. Uh, and this can be over a significant period of time. The, the, some more recent data suggests that they're at a increased risk of disc herniation uh, when they return to gravity, and, and uh, that becomes a health concern for the crew. And, and, obviously, and obviously, if they have a, you know, a, a chronic back pain and potentially disc herniation space, uh, that's going to be very difficult to deal with. So the question was, why does this, why does this happen? Uh, the ARAD is a device that's developed to, tr to load the, the hips and the spine in order to maintain bone health. And, you know, the data show that with the implementation of uh, these kinds of devices on the space station, that you can uh, decrease the amount of bone loss in the, in the uh, spine and in the femoral neck. But this hasn't led to um, a impact on back pain. So there's something else happening that's separate from uh, what's going on with bone and uh, and muscles, because this obviously is going to improve muscle health around the, the large movers around the hip and the back. So one of the clues uh, as to what's going on with the spine 
has to do with uh, the fact that the astronauts tend to get taller uh, when they return uh, to Earth. Uh, and that increase in stature is a combination of, um, uh, you know, we think, uh, increasing height amongst all the disks of the hydrated component of the spine, plus a, a loss of curvature. So this shows the curvature of a, uh, in the side view of a, of a crew member in one gravity, one G, uh, and what they look like in zero G. So you can see there's this loss of the natural curve the spine has in the thoracic and the lumbar spine. And so when you straighten out the spine, the crew tend to get longer. Uh, so, so there's something that's happening with stature that's underlying this. And so, you know, from the perspective that uh, our group has had, which is looking at the, the hydrated discs that separate the bones, you know, it's, it, we had a hypothesis going into this study as to what's really going on. And so the, you know, the, the discs are these hydrated uh, structures that separate bones. At the center of the discs is this um, highly charged macromolecule. And what this does is it essentially creates an osmotic pump. So this bottle brush structure is positively charged. It attracts uh, negatively charged uh, sodium ions. Uh, the concentration gradient from inside the spinal disc to the outside creates a concentration gradient, which then causes a pressurization uh, due to osmolality. And that pressurization essentially resists the forces, the, the physical forces in the back. So you have this competing physical force and then a chemical force that's working in opposition. And what happens um, over time as we age, um, that the ability for the hydration to uh, osmotically uh, you know, lift the vertebra diminishes because this molecule breaks down and, and loses its ability to attract attract water. So I apologize for those of you who are eating dinner right now. These are cadaver spines that have been cut open in the, in the side, in the sagittal plane or uh, kind of the midsection. And you can see in a healthy disc the, how this nucleus tends to want to expand. It has this kind of a consistency of a garden snail, a colleague of mine would say. And that as, as our discs degenerate, the, the, this nucleus in the middle becomes more fibrotic and, and then ultimately loses its ability to keep the bones apart. So we felt that this um, hydration um, and its capacity to resist loading was a central feature by why a crew experienced pain in space. And one of the other uh, factors that led to our thinking is, is this diurnal fluctuation, what happens uh, at night when you, um, this is a graph of kind of the height of your discs versus time. And at night, because you've unloaded your spine, you're lying down, it can, the chemical pressure is, is uh, greater than the physical pressure and it takes on water. It, it uh, attracts water from the extra discal tissues. And then when you get up in the morning and you load your back, the physical forces exceed the chemical forces and you squeeze water out. And so you've got this diurnal fluctuation of hydration and dehydration. And so you can imagine that if you're in space and you don't have gravity, that the disc is continually take on water and take on water and potentially come overpressurized. Uh, that increased water content can have a uh, negative effect on cell function because cells like in the disc, they like a certain hydration status. And when you change that, they may become dysfunctional. So that was our hypothesis going into this. And this is a little video, which uh, we used actually to recruit crew for the study, which kind of describes it. So this is a, a side view of your spine. The discs are here, um, the vertebra, this is your spinal cord. And so as you're, you flex and extend your spine, you know, this hydrated disc allows that mobility also while resisting forces um, that 
compress. So this kind of shows that when you exceed swelling pressure, water goes out. And when you unload, water comes back in and that gives this diurnal fluctuation. So the thinking is in space, the, the disc becomes super physiologically hydrated. That can create extra tension or stress on the on the collagenous structures. It also can lead to some degenerative changes, which is kind of depicted by that brown in the middle. And, uh, and so consequently, as the crew are in this condition for a period of time, it deconditions the disc such that when they come back to gravity, uh, the tissue may fail, causing a disc herniation. So that was our, um, our thinking as we proposed this study. So we, uh, myself, along with uh, my collaborator, Alan Hargens at UC San Diego, we uh, received funding to follow a crew pre and post flight of six, six months on the space station to study their spines, uh, essentially test what are the conditions that might lead to increased risk of disc herniation. And then hopefully that insight would provide some uh, basis for developing countermeasures. So we did a base set of scans and, and tests uh, between uh, you know uh, three months and uh, and a, about a month before launch, uh, six months in space, the uh, essentially the first set of tests that they underwent when they returned to gravity were were done uh, focusing on the spine such that they didn't have time to acclimate. And then we did some recovery tests three months later. And this was actually kind of an interesting logistical challenge because the crew at the time were um, you know returning, leaving and returning in Russia, so they had to get on a private jet flown to, to um, Houston and we had a crew there ready to go to test them uh, the first morning after they returned. Uh, so we um, had to, uh, you know, essentially, uh, um, um, you know, get the crew to volunteer. So it was kind of a marketing campaign amongst all the other physical uh, studies, studies that required their time and energy. So they couldn't do everything. And so there were, Alan and myself spent a fair amount of time working with uh, crew uh, um, um, to understand, you know, what are the factors that, that might encourage versus discourage them to participate. And so it took a number of years for us to get our full complement of, of crew. So these, this shows some of the studies that we had done. We had uh, traditional MRI, we had MRI scans with them standing. We did what's called dynamic fluoroscopy. So the crew would uh, flex and extend. And while they were flexing and extending forward and back and side to side, we would measure the motion uh, between the bones in their back and calculate uh, how much they moved. We also had some questionnaires uh, of uh, their pain and disability status. So this Sorensen test was a kind of a functional test of the ability for them to uh, uh, move their spine and resist force. So one of the key findings that we had was that, uh, you know, consistent, I think, with our uh, knowledge of the prior data that spines in generally uh, stiffened and flattened. So this is a, an example of a side view. The crew member will be looking off uh, to our left. So this is the front, this is the back before and after uh, six months of space. And so, you, you know, just by eye, you can kind of see that the, this, the lordosis, this curvature was lost. Uh, this tended to be in the range of about, um, uh, about 10%. Uh, looking at the dynamic fluoroscopy, there was an accompanying stiffening. So the, the spines got straighter and they got stiffer, uh, both in flexion extension and in lateral bending. Uh, this is an example of what we uh, measurement we collected to look at the hydration. So these are side views of the spine again of the MRI and the colors here are essentially quantification of the hydration 
uh, status of the discs. And so bright red is more hydration, blue is less hydration. And the upper spine, the discs are typically healthier. So they're brighter in the middle, you know, that center region where that uh, uh, macromolecule is that attracts water. And in, in the lower parts of the spine, um, you know, those discs tend to burn out, they are less hydrated. So this was kind of what you would expect. And this is probably what most of our spines look like if we were to have the uh, test done. And so what was uh, surprising to us is that when you look at the, the change in water content per disc pre post flight, it really, there was no systematic increase or decrease. Uh, we uh, adjusted these for this Furman grade as kind of a measure of pre-flight degeneration. So this would be a higher Furman grade than this one. We thought by adjusting for a disc that maybe has lost its ability to hydrate, that might show us some trends, but essentially half the disc got, had increased disc height and water content and, and another half uh, didn't. So this was really kind of a surprise to us that this this hypothesis that increased hydration would be the rationale for stiffness and height change was essentially disproven. And there was actually a funny episode we were presenting to a, a NASA group in Houston and pre um, uh, before the conference, I was sitting with a group that was using, looking at cervical ultrasound in flight and they were kind of panicked because they, they were, they found the same uh, result and were thinking that that was a, uh, an indication that their study was flawed in some fashion. And so there's a sigh of relief when we both <laughs> told each other, we basically found the same thing. Uh, what we did find, which was uh, pretty striking in terms of the, the statistical significance for such a small number of crew was that um, the paraspinal muscles, uh, particularly this deep paraspinal muscles. So this is a kind of a transverse section through the spine. Here's the invertebral disc. The front of the person would be over here, the back over here. And this, these deep muscles uh, in your back called the multifidi are there to stabilize your spine. And essentially these muscles were losing cross-sectional area and the, the extent by which the, we lost lumbar lordosis and the extent by which we lost range of motion was uh, proportional to the amount by which that muscle atrophied. So there was a very significant relationship between multifidus atrophy and the two primary indicators that we're looking at, the uh, loss of uh, curvature and, and increased stiffening. Uh, the other uh, finding which um, uh, was important is, is kind of shown here. So this is the side view of MRI scans of a, a subset of the crew. And you know this one uh, to calibrate your eyes, pretty healthy, the discs are bright um, and the, the disc height is pretty ma well maintained. But you can see other crew members have have sp uh, spines that look kind of ratty. You know, this one has, you can see some degenerative changes here. There's height loss here. Uh, this particular one, if you looked at it closely, has a disc herniation. And this, you know, is primarily, I think, a, an art of, a fact that um, uh, a result of the fact that a lot of the crew are older. They've had, you know, a lot more pilots. They've experienced a lot of vibration and shock over the course of their careers. So their spines have suffered as a result. And what we found um, was that the, crew that had a combination of muscle atrophy in flight plus uh, certain degenerative findings, which are kind of shown here with this, there's some kind of bone marrow edema, were the ones that were most symptomatic post-flight as indicated by these asterisks. We did have a situation where there was a post-flight disc herniation here as this one particular level uh, in one crew pre-flight and post-flight, you can see the disc herniation here. And we've gone on to have a few few crew who uh, had that suffered that condition 
kind of during our observation period. So, um, so this really kind of opened our eyes as to, you know, what's the relationship between not only the discs and the bones, but the paraspinal muscles and this whole system is working together. And we've then, uh, we've subsequently started to look at this in terrestrial populations. Uh, so there's a, a series of clinical studies that we've initiated uh, since this NASA study was completed, where we've uh, looked at the paraspinal muscles. This is a, a more sophisticated te- a technique called ideal MRI, where you can actually get measurements of fat fraction. Uh, this is the subcutaneous fatta here the, along the edge, the multifidi are here, uh, and the kind of the level which this is collected is kind of shown in the side view. And we've uh, studied the relationship between the, this paraspinal muscle atrophy and back pain and in back pain patients. And so you see a fairly strong relationship here between a measure of how disabled the back pain patient was versus how much of their um, paraspinal muscles have turned to fat. And uh, this essentially is indicating that the patients have lost their ability to kind of maintain this fine motor control over position. And the multifidi really aren't ones, the big movers that would help you, uh, you know, bend over and, and touch your toes and stand up straight, but they're really there for more fine motor control. Uh, and this, the other component of this, as I mentioned, is the uh, some of these degenerative changes which can happen in the disc. This is a, a cross-section of another cadaveric sample. And one of the things that we've, we're finding is that the, the disc is a soft tissue and it's up against a hard uh, bone. And so the, this interface between the soft pliable tissue and the bone is kind of like the line of scrimmage. So a lot of things are happening. The stresses are high and you can have breakdown, which leads to inflammation in the bone marrow. That's where all the blood vessels are. And this inflammation can cause pain. And so we've since gone on to develop some techniques that allow us to measure that breakdown in a more quantitative way. So this is a, an example of a, an image from a patient, which is a standard MRI scan. Um, this is that water Based scan that I showed you, where the you know bright red in the middle is high water, blue is the bluer colors are low water, and then this is a, a a different type of a scan that gives us much more contrast of this cartilage that's at the interface between the disc and the bone. And when we measure the amount of breakdown at that interface um, with this technique, what we find is that the odds that a patient has back pain as compared to a control population is significantly increased, and I call odds ratio about 14, if they have evidence of that breakdown at that interface. And that odds ratio increases by about a factor of two for every disc that has breakdown at that interface with these uh, bone marrow changes adjacent to it. So this is a really clinically important uh, condition. Um, and the the other uh, fact, though, that coming back to the muscles is when you've got a patient which has high quality multifidi, they don't, they haven't turned to fat, uh, this relationship goes away. So there's this crosstalk between the discs and the vertebra where, you know, you need the stabilization to keep that interface from undergoing too much stress. And these, the, the both the muscles and the discs really work together. And so we're uh, looking at now um, ways of intervening. So what does this tell us about both diagnostic and therapy? Can we teach patients to um, you know, improve the quality of their multifidi uh, to uh, help them manage their back pain. There's some therapeutic work going on um, where investigators are actually even putting fine wire electrodes in the multifidi, almost like a cardiac pacemaker, as a way to tickle those muscles to uh, get them to uh, wake up uh, and solve back pain patients for those that have particular problem with uh, fatty degeneration. Uh, 
this is another uh, an example actually from one of our crew, which makes this case of this crosstalk. So this, um, these images are a cross section of just one side of the multifidi on the right over here on the right, and the and the left multifidi over here, and the brighter the color, the more fat in that multifidus. And this particular individual had a disc herniation on the right side, and so you can see as you look vertically at the different levels in the spine, many more of the multifidal multifidi at levels have turn to fat on the side of the disc herniation versus the opposite side. So the, you know, what is it about damage at that level that's causing these changes to the muscle? And is it a chicken, you know, what's the chicken or egg here in terms of, is it the muscle atrophy that's destabilizing the spine, increasing risk for disc herniation, or is it a disc herniation and de-innervation of the muscle or potentially inflammation that's causing the fatty infiltration of the of the uh, muscle, we don't quite, we don't yet know. So some of the takeaways then from our work is that uh, microgravity stiffens and straightens the spine. Uh, this has to do uh, with, um, in, well, it results in increased stress during flexion and extension because that increased stiffening overloads those ligamentous structures. Uh, that also can be exacerbated if there's some bone related loss of strength. And the combination of those two, uh, loss of bone strength, uh, overloading and potentially um, um, deconditioning the disc causes the potential for this type of a disc herniation. There's a rupture at that interface. The disc herniation can happen once the crew has returned to earth and is exposed to gravity. Uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, the, re the question you might have is why didn't the ARAD and some of the device devices on the space station um, keep that multifidi from um, atrophying? And part of the reason we think is that the that multifidi are there for controlling spine posture and the crew report that they never do anything they never have to bend over and twist or pick anything up they just kind of rotate their whole body and the loading that they experience both on a treadmill and in this arad is is in line uh, so these fine motor control movements that the multifidi is responsible for rarely never get challenged so um so that's something that we've been thinking about in terms of how do you um, develop uh, exercises which are more like yoga where you're uh, maintaining postures that are you're trying to resist twisting torsion uh, such that the multifidi are kept healthy and active um, and uh, hopefully prevent this atrophy that would occur over time and space. Uh, one of the things that we you know from the some of the work that we've uh, described to uh, NASA they have started um, collecting MRI scans pre-flight and in order to get further evidence as to are there changes in the spine pre-flight that might create risk for back pain and disc herniation post-flight. So that's obviously a, a question that need to understand, but it's, you know, you don't want to prejudice against a particular crew member because they have a spine that may look a little bit different than others. So that's something that they want to tread very carefully on. But the good news is that they've begun to collect data for um, looking at this question in a larger population. As we talked with some of the engineers designing or who are charged to, with designing equi exercise equipment for the rocket to Mars, you know, they mentioned that they essentially have the size of a suitcase that all of the exercise equipment has to fit in. They can't, they don't have the luxury of, of space that's on the space station. So they basically turned us and said, what goes in the box? You know, should it be elastic bands? Should it be some fancy piece of equipment? And so there's, I think, an active effort right now to really think about the overall musculoskeletal health, not just bones, uh, but muscles and discs and what that might infer in terms of the kind of equipment and protocols. Um, so uh, 
thank you very much. I'll just end with one last slide. You know, we have um, taken the things we've learned from this NASA study are now starting a big consortium project across the U.S. as part of the HEAL initiative to uh, um, influence um, the opioid epidemic. And so we are uh, collecting data from hundreds of back pain patients, uh, you know, deploying machine learning, AI, and a lot of um, sophisticated te techniques to interpret those data to come up with some precision medicine approaches at, at treating back pain. So in the example here, is it a, should a patient get a treatment for a multifidus atrophy? Do they need a tra uh, treatment for a disc herniation? Do they need a treatment for uh, you know, some type of vertebral damage? So the, the algorithms for doing that and the kind of studies that are collecting those data really haven't been well-defined. So we're hoping to uh, use this as an opportunity to come up with a state-of-the-art uh, approach for helping clinicians optimize a treatment for particular patients. So I will stop there. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.